endocrinologist at um, Royal Devon in Exeter. He also runs the obesity service there, but he's going to look at the other end of the spectrum, which can have an equal impact on mortality, and we're seeing more of these patients being missed So, Mark? Thanks very much. Yes, I was reminded in uh, Paddy's talk really of how we perceive the extremes of weight. So I think the BBC did a, a little survey of showing people photographs of BMI of 30 and the overwhelming majority uh, rated them as of a normal weight. Very similarly, um, I've, I, we had a recent patient with anorexia who had a BMI of 9 and been living in a university community for some time before she collapsed in a hypoglycemic coma, and yet people around her had not recognized the extremity of her weight loss. We are tolerating, in many ways, extremes of weight uh, within our, our communities. Um, thanks, really, to the late Ken McLeod, some of whom you know, who really started the work for a decade or so, working on anorexia. Um, in Exeter on the physician side um, and also Roderick Warren, one of our endocrinologists, <coughs> works, works with us who um, has done a lot of more, more detailed work around refeeding recently. Um, but these are a really um, problematic approach and I don't think they're generally served well because people don't necessarily t um, take ownership. I've done I've done this talk both for gastroenterology registrars and endocrinologists in, in the past and often the feedback is actually we don't have a core service for these patients that where physicians are involved in our hospitals and I think around the country people lose out from that. There are some specialist centres but they're really challenging. I think you need a physician who's really interested in this with the really strong support of your psychiatrist and very much of your organization as well because if you're going to manage them correctly you will need to do things that are approaching the edges of what's normal practice for most people and also medical legally. So I think there are very few conditions where you need such strong leadership in the best interest of the patient and having the courage to, to go with that and may go counter to the instincts or wishes of your staff who you really need to be on side when you're managing such patients. So if you take, there was a, a, a case in Wales a little while back where a patient with severe anorexia wanted to be allowed to die, was force-fed, best interest decided by a high court, court judge. Up until that point, this young girl was in a community hospital under a palliative care regime for anorexia. Um, I find that quite distressing because I've seen people in very extreme psychiatric conditions who are also extremely depressed, who have no necessarily sometimes have a desire to live, sometimes they don't, whose treatment of the anorexia and raising of the body mass has radically altered their psychiatric state. But he acknowledged that this sort of treatment and invasive uh, NG feeding against the person's expressed wishes at the time, um, a patient may perceive as abusive and it in itself is of psychiatric, is psychological distress to them. So I'd like to take you through a not unusual pathway of care for us. 19-year-old girl admitted with a BMI of 12. She's been in institutionalized care really since the age of nine. And she's had further weight loss and a common precipitant for a, phys for a physician's admission is minimal intake for a week to two weeks prior to admission. And initially, she agrees for a voluntary admission. Um, and we have certain admission criteria when we look about what can somebody go, we have a specialist eating disorders unit in the psychiatric hospital next to us. Um, the Holden unit, which takes people from around the peninsula, um, but we have admission criteria about where we're concerned when we're admitted. And I do find myself 
my colleagues refer back to these criteria on a regular basis, uh, um, which we find helpful in, in assessing risk. So there are some basic things which I'll, I'll go through, and obviously Jamie has access to the presentation now, so I'm sure you'll be emailing around for people who want it, uh, and are very comfortable with that. Um, but we start to have a concern with regards to potential admission around the BMI of 14, and when people hit a BMI under 12, we definitely admit. But um, I would say probably our average BMI around admission is about 13 because they meet some other criteria. Weight loss of a, a half to a kilo a week might strike you as, well, that's not very much. And usually it's for a period of about a month prior to admission and hitting new fats. But when your body mass index is, when your weight is 30 kilos, a kilo is a lot to you lose of that weight in a week. Uh, they are typically hypotensive individuals and they become more hypotensive either because of cardiac dysfunction um, or because of potentially dehydration, often with postural drop. And very commonly, these patients are almost universally bradycardic uh, um, and uh, hypothermic as an adaptation to try and restrict further weight loss, really. Um, uh, just one of the things that you'll see a lot of anorexic patients do, well, they will want to be in the bed near the window. One of our restrictions that we put on anorexic patients is they either don't go near a window or the window is locked because these, and they do not allow the fan because these patients will choose to be up by a window and they will choose to have a fan because that increases their calorie expenditure. Uh, muscular strength, using the arms to stand very often or even can't stand from a sitting position. I've seen a lot of people in this situation at its most extreme situation and the only anorexic patient in the 12 years I've been in Exeter who's died actually had lost so much muscle mass that when she developed, uh, 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 she had a lesion on her chest x when she did bronchoscopy, um, she had not enough muscle to mount a cough reflex of bronchoscopy and the respiratory dysfunction was profound. So the muscle loss is not just skeletal, it's also cardiac and respiratory. Um, bone marrow suppression, as I'll come on to, to late later case, is actually really very common uh, across a range of things that you might see. Hyponatremia, particularly if people are fluid overloading, and I'll come on to that, but that uh, fluid loading will be done. And hypokalemia in the initial stages, often driven by purging or vomiting, which may not hear from the GP history, but at the second or third time of asking, you actually may get from the patient. So, you know, typically I've had patients taking up to 100 laxatives a day in order to help maintain weight loss. And that's profound effects on, on, on electrolytes. ECG often typically uh, abnormal on admission or it becomes abnormal as you start to refeed them. So we do daily ECGs in these patients. Can get um, uh, liver function abnormalities and recently we had a patient during the refeeding phase mounted an ALT up to 800 with no other signs of pathology on investigation which subsequently normalized. So really quite a wider range of uh, uh, things that people might, might associate with. Um, and we look for a quite wide range of electrolytes. Look at this patient, typically well presented, as most many of these patients are. And for those who've looked after anorexic patients and you have the long admission, you will know that they will own their own bed space. They'll have their own, their own pillows. They're usually computer and phone. Um, and in that respect, there is a wide a widespread sort of internet culture amongst anorexic patients now. Uh, but grossly cachectic, hypertensive, bradycardic, and this 19-year-old girl was prepubertal. She'd had anorexia since the age of 12, and she had never even started on puberty. 
oestrogen uh, um, is desperately low um, in all these patients. Um, and we see slight bone marrow dysfunction initially, slight hyponatremia, reasonably okay phosphate, bradycardic, but the long QT. <coughs> How do we assess these patients? Um, I'm going to talk through all of this, but we have things that we do on a daily basis, things that we, which are in red, the things that we do on sort of twice weekly basis, things that we do um, less frequency. In the beginning, we always assess the endocrine side of things, although pretty well that's academic because these patients will be hypogonadal and they will be hypogonadal with a pattern of pituitary dysfunction. They will have a low ALH, a low FSH and a low estradiol. We give them lots of vitamins and sandophos, which we continue, and we give them Pabrinex initially. The thing that probably people perhaps may not appreciate is how low we go when we first start to refeed. And the I usually try and push the dietitians a little bit harder, particularly if I've got somebody on telemetry. But we're starting at 5 kilocalories per kilo per day. 30 kilos, 150 calories, feels like you're starving them even more. But quite rapidly we step that up. And often I will push them to just go a bit higher, and at a higher BMI you can go higher. This is designed to reduce the risk of, uh, of the refeeding syndrome, and we try to agree the menu plans with the patient if we're going for an oral approach, which we usually do initially. We would tend to use normal foods in preference to supplements because trying to normalize the transition to eating later. Very, very strict bed rest, commode to the bathroom, wheelchair to go anywhere because it really is about restricting energy expenditure. Uh, away from the window, no fans, as uh, I mentioned before. Although your restrictions are very much in line with their mental health status, their uh, <coughs> sort of section status. If somebody's a voluntary admission, then they're compliant with this. There comes a point where they may cross that as I, I, I come on. And your contract with them is that compliance is, abso is absolute, really, to continue with the admission. But we now have this patient who is non-compliant, non-compliant with activity. I can remember a patient, thinking of Paddy's patients before, uh, uh, had a patient in one bed, unfortunate, fortunate just juxtaposition opposite each other, somebody with a BMI of 83 and somebody with a BMI of 12. The person with a BMI of 83 is every movement was the economy of effort. There will be a slow planned direct movement to the remote control, slowly back again. Everything was minimal. The anorexic patient looked like she was running a marathon on the bed. She was just writhing, moving around, constant activity. So at this point, we felt with her non-compliance, her life was at risk and her decisions being affected by her mental health. Some of that can be related to the anorexic uh, mentality and the psychopathology associated with it. Sometimes, very rarely, it can be associated with the degree of weight loss. So that there's a frank cognitive dysfunction. And I've had, had a patient, male patient from Plymouth uh, many years ago who, frankly, his cognition improved massively over two to three weeks once he had the appropriate vitamins and the energy in. So it's not just skeletal muscle and fat that's lost. There is brain dysfunction as well, and that affects mental capacity and mental health. So we advised to go to NG feeding, and we also needed to search belongings, which is another invasion of these people's privacy, but is necessary. So intermittent compliance with the feeding plan. Razor blades were found, self-harm very common in this group, and salt sachets. Uh, anorexic patients, more than any other patients I've ever come across, have a really, really good understanding of physiology. They know how to manipulate their weight um, in ways that would surprise you. 
And in fact, this mother had been bringing in salt sachets for her daughter at her daughter's request. And that's another common factor is that the family relationships can be so difficult. Um, because, of course, if you fluid load, they know that we pick that up in the hyponatremia. If you fluid load and salt, salt load, it's more difficult to pick up changes in weight, which, is, which makes it difficult. And now this bit is where I think you have to have the courage in your, your practice and where you very much have to uh, um, have the support of your nursing staff and your, at your most senior nursing level and the psychiatrists and preferably to have people who are trained in restraint, who are comfortable with restraint. And usually that means, in, in my experience, it is the most senior nurses doing it with the support of the medics. Everybody has to be clear that this is the way we operate. And it does not help the patient one bit if the staff appear to be split. The most unhappy anorexic patients, in my experience, are the ones who think there's a chance they can persuade the staff. Once they know that this is a line management, this is a brick wall, and there's nothing they can do about it, they become much happier. Uh, um, so something about the boundaries uh, are, are being absolutely robust actually is very helpful to the patient. So we do NG feeding. We had to reposition it five times in the first 24 hours. And in the situation of somebody taking it out and exerting themselves in the process of doing it, we do a bolus feed under restraint. That's not about punishment, but it is about setting boundaries and it is about making sure you get continued weight gain. By day eight, we are now getting successful refeeding. And we see that in the hypokalemia and hypophosphatemia, which are probably the two most common things we see requiring IV replacement. Subsequent good weight get rate regain back to BMI 15, and then we establish weight stability with basic mobility and then eating disorder services. Once you're through the refeeding syndrome, if you've got a good inpatient eating disorder facility, you can move into that environment. So anorexia itself, so that's the sort of case and sort of thing that we might see. Tense fear of weight gain in anorexic patients, relatively modest uh, weight criteria uh, without recognition, either purging or restricting or both. Okay. Despite often be for successful families, very proud of their, their appearance, etc., uh, 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 they will actually score low self-evaluation. I looked after a patient recently who'd been a high-performing athlete, and yet she was constantly apologetic um, because of the trouble she was causing us, and it just related to her, her low self-esteem. Um, and you'll see the symptoms that you might expect, the dramatic weight loss, the excessive rigid exercise regimen. I remember when I was a young registrar, just coming across one of our patients just marching up eight floors of power, marching up eight, eight, eight flights of stairs while she was on an inpatient stay for weight regain. Uh, um, and, you know, families may or may not pick up this, this behavior. In the UK, one in 250 females, one in 2,000 males. I haven't looked, I've looked after a couple of men. Uh, uh, um, so we see slightly less than that in the southwest. But a standardized mortality rate of 9.5, which is huge for such, a, uh, uh, such young women. And the older which you present, the higher your mortality. Um, I'll flick through this because we're slightly short of time. But if you look at outcomes over time, what I could basically, the take-home um, message for this is that um, adolescent onset has a better chance of recovery, uh, uh, variable onset less so, 
um, and the longer term follow up, the um, uh, uh, the the poorer the outcome that you get. Um, but also, very depressingly, if you look at three cohorts, 1950 onwards, 1980 onwards, 1990 onwards, we have not had a major impact on the mortality associated with anorexia. Uh, um, okay, that doesn't, I think, add anything except to say that uh, if you look at outcome, a lot of patients, only 57% return to um, menstruation, which is a good surrogate marker of a, an effective weight. Around 50% normalize their eating behavior. Uh, um, so complete recovery is not the rule for such patients. Refeeding syndrome itself that gastroenterologists see perhaps in liver patients, alcoholic patients, and I'm always a little bit puzzled that we don't see it so much in some of our elderly patients. Um, I think we probably will in the future if we get better against uh, getting good nutrition into them. Um, uh, I think when they've done the studies of the food that comes off the trolley uh, at mealtimes in hospitals and then goes back on, uh, most people are on a crash diet during their stay in hospital. Um, American Japanese prisoners of war died, cardiac failure, rhabdomyolysis, respiratory failure, arrhythmias in particular, all driven by crashing low serum phosphate. The pathophysiology is interesting, but relatively straightforward. Your insulin is decreased during your starvation phase. You're mobilizing fat and protein. You lose intracellular electrolytes. And then when you start to eat particularly carbohydrate, everything shifts the other way around. You need the phosphate from the ADP uh, for ATP formation. So you get marked hypophosphatemia and hypokalemia. How should we manage it? The risk is obvious, though perhaps we don't think of it often enough, and I am challenged to think of it in a number of my elderly patients, uh, um, as well as my anorexic patients. But the degree of risk can be more difficult. Um, I tend to assume that once I've got somebody through a week of good intake and weight gain, convincing weight gain, then I assume I'm out, outside of the risk of that. And telemetry is something we're moving to much more. So I've had two patients in the last six months that we've had to put on a cardiac ward because my ward doesn't have telemetry, although that's about to change, um, because I consider that monitoring is not enough. Our surrogate up to that point has been daily ECGs, and if the ECG is abnormal, they go on telemetry, and I think that's important. Um, so um, there are nice criteria with regards to risk of uh, um, refeeding, which again are relatively generous, i.e. higher than we typically see it, you know, BMI of less than 18.5 with a weight loss of more than 10% in three to six months. But particularly that last phase where there's little or no nutrition on the background uh, of weight loss. Um, we do a range of the bloods that you might expect. Magnesium, phosphate and calcium tend to be less of uh, um, uh, an, an issue uh, than this potassium and the phosphate. Um, I'll, come, I'll skip through some of this. Sand, okay, intravenous, that's standard where you switch for intravenous to oral potassium. Uh, phosphate, we're still using oral phosphate predominantly, but the moment we go under 0.5, we go to IV, so that's what you might, might expect. Okay. Magnesium, very rarely have to use, and similar with calcium. So um, it is, in a range of patients, a very debilitating condition. Uh, um, uh, and really, in terms of men, I can't find, I'll be interested to see if any of my endocrinology colleagues have looked, have, have looked after many people in this situation, but there is very, very little data um, uh, in men for longer term. Of course, testosterone crashes during acute illness. Um, 
it does it, uh, um, perhaps a little bit less marked than it does in females, and it's probably partially adaptive response. Um, when you look at the uh, women, we've had a number of anorexic girls who we've supported through pregnancy, showing really successful. They still have, for, for many of the patients, they still have some of the problems with their eating, and they need real support, but they want the pregnancy so much that they're prepared to have a really, really good gut. Um, and we have had a number of successful pregnancies. So, so what I would, would suggest is that the anorexia is behaviorally extremely challenging. There are an unpopular group of patients that people do not like looking after, yet there are a young group of patients that we can really offer a lot to if we're prepared to be really, really strict about the boundaries. It means having one particular ward who knows how to look after these patients and a particular united approach, um, and therefore a strong leadership of the team to achieve that. And Again, just to be physiologically really alert to the risks of these patients. Thanks very much.